Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and welcome to this episode of The Christopher Perrin Show. Today, uh, I want to address the issue of the canon. Now, there are two canons. There's the canon that's spelled with two N's, actually three, C-A-N-N-O-N, and it comes from the Latin word cana, which means, well, a tube, and it's uh, related to the artillery piece, a cannon. But the canon that I'm speaking about comes from the Greek. It comes from the Greek word kanon. Uh, now we say canon, and it's spelled with just two N's, C-A-N-O-N, in English anyway. And that's the canon that I want to address. And of that canon, there are two varieties that I think it would be wise for classical educators to know something about and to think about. And that's the biblical canon and the canon of the great books or the great books canon. The biblical canon is a description of, is a list of books that are considered to be inspired in Holy Scripture. The great books canon is a, a canon of books that are considered to be very, very good. Uh, excellent books, classic books with enduring excellence that everybody should know about and many of us should try and read. The Greek word kanon comes from a word that means measuring rod or, or, or a measure or, a, or a, a rule. So I have written an essay uh, on the canon and I'm going to follow that carefully. It's also published on my substack, christopherperrin.substack.com. So one of the famous songs from Gilbert and Sullivan's Mikado, if you've ever seen that play, is called I've Got a Little List. It's a song that's sung by Coco. Coco is the town tailor who's been elevated to the position of Lord High Executioner. And Coco has been told that if there is not soon an execution, the town will be downgraded to a village. So he compiles a list of all those he finds irritating and undesirable, and he puts them on a list for execution. And you can look this up, you can listen to it being sung. It's a kind of a funny song. But it goes like this. As someday it may happen that a victim must be found, I've got a little list. I've got a little list, sings Coco. Of society offenders who might well be underground and who never would be missed, who never would be missed. There's the pestilential nuisances who write for autographs, all people who have flabby hands and irritating laughs, all children who are up in dates and floor you with them flat. All persons who, in shaking hands, shake hands with you like that. And all third persons who, on spoiling tays insist, they'd none of them be missed. They'd none of them be missed. And then the chorus sings, he's got them on the list. He's got them on the list. And they'll none of them be missed. They'll none of them be missed. And when that play is done, often contemporary figures are mentioned who are put on the list the list for execution. They're on the list, but they won't be missed. When the canon of scripture uh, was debated through the years, some books were put on the list for dismissal, most famously by the heretic Marcion, who excluded in his list of the books he thought should be in the New Testament, in the scriptures anyway. He excluded Matthew, Mark, and John, and included only Luke. He excluded the book of Revelation as well. And the book of Revelation was often on various lists. Luther excluded the book of James, which he regarded as an epistle of straw. James was on Luther's list, and to him anyway, it would not be missed. He thought it contradicted 
salvation by grace through faith alone. In the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we read this. It's verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 18. John writing, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take him away from that person any share in the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this scroll. In other words, if you want your name to be in that list, the book of life, don't take anything from this book or you will be taken off the list and you will not be missed. I'm going too far there, I think. The scroll describes here, the scroll that's described here is the book of Revelation, not the entire Bible. But the principle is clear. No one may add to the writing of Holy Scripture. Just what then is Holy Scripture? Who gets to decide what's Scripture? What criteria are used to determine if a book is part of the biblical canon and thus regarded as Scripture? Well, this is its own interesting story. And maybe as you're thinking about it right now, especially if you're in the Christian tradition, you can sense that it's complicated. It's multi-perspectival. Let's talk, therefore, about the biblical canon. The word canon is derived from the Greek kanon, as we said, which means simply measure or rule. It's a standard by which something can be measured and ruled in or ruled out. Does the book of Revelation meet the standard, by the way? Is it ruled in and is regarded as part of the biblical canon, that authoritative list, that is scripture? If we think that there could be a canon of great books, an authoritative list of great books that are ruled in by some criteria, well then, uh, what criteria would we use to rule in a book or rule a book out of, say, a canon of great books? Traditionally, there have been two canons, a canon of scripture, especially in, Western, in the Western tradition, and a canon of great books outside of scripture. Beside the development of these two canons, I believe is a simple human truth. And it's this, to select something important is to canonize. It's to put something in according to a standard, a rule. Every day, after all, we have to make decisions. We must choose. When we choose from among multiple possibilities, we choose for meaning, we choose for what we esteem, we choose for what we love or prefer, what we think is good or best or useful. Even reading these words involves a selection process uh, or hearing these words and interpreting them. As you choose for meaning, as you select the pattern that letters form and that words form, selecting them for meaning, the Latin word legere, which means to read, and the noun lectio, which means reading, all have this idea of selection at their root. Note the relationship between the words elect, select, collect, and the Latin lectio, all involve this idea of selection or choice. The same is true with our word intelligence, by the way. It's from the Latin intelligere, which means to choose from among. Now, think about this. When you read, especially uh, 
If you looked at an ancient manuscript that didn't have lowercase letters and didn't have uh, periods, letters just all crammed together, maybe not even paragraphs, just a scroll of letters, um, all capitals, how would you be able to make meaning of that? Well, you look for the patterns. You would look for the words. You would put letters together to form words and words to form sentences. Uh, to, to read intelligently is already to, in that, especially in the ancient world, to select letters from among a large collection of them, to see the order in them, the pattern, to choose from among. That's at the root of the word intelligence, and that's interesting to me. When you read, you choose to pattern the letters before you, making them mean. And when you understand anything, you also have to come to see how things fit together. This is intelligence. <clears throat> a canon, at least from an important perspective, is therefore a collection, and here's another word that has the, 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 the selection idea present, collectio, and the verb is colligere, uh, which means a gathering together. A collection of books is therefore a gathering together of books by a process of selection that deserve to be in the same group by some standard. Just as humans collect butterflies, coins, and stamps, they collect books. The word Bible itself is derived from a word that means books. It's biblia. Biblia in Greek simply means books, a plurality of books. For the Bible is a collection of books, all selected by criteria, criteria applied by people who determine that these books deserve to be in the same group that we call Holy Scripture. Using the word canon to describe the books of the Bible does imply that it's quite an important collection, because we don't usually use that word canon just uh, uh, flippantly, but it, it, historically, traditionally, it means a, a very authoritative list. And, well, the Bible is an important collection. It is. Nonetheless, the Bible, from another perspective, is a book list, even if a particularly important one. Christians regarded the Bible as the supreme book list, the mother of all lists, the chief authoritative list, and that's that which measures and assesses all other lists. But as soon as we start thinking about this, there enters in another strain of thought, a paradox. Humans seem to select the list, but the list seems not to be passive, calmly waiting for our assessment and decision. It appears to be living and active, to make reference to Hebrews 4. And it seems to call out for us and even judge us. Thus, some regard the list as self-attesting or self-authenticating, such that the books of the Bible are simply recognized for what they are, the inspired word of God, and therefore the ultimate criterion that judges all things and which is judged by none. This seems to contradict the idea that we would select these books. It seems like they select us. Some will say that, in a sense, the canon of Scripture selects itself, chooses itself. Those familiar with ancient church history will know 
that there were, in fact, debates and discussion about what books should comprise a list of books considered to be holy scripture, inspired by God, and that's valuable for all Christians to read. If the canon chose itself, it apparently did not do so by some clarion proclamation or declaration. It was rather by a broad consensus that the church recognized this canon for what it was by virtue of its own display of authority. Christ did not publish a definitive list of all the books that should be considered part of the Old Testament canon. Nor did the Apostle John, when he completed the book of Revelation, regarded as the last book written in the New Testament, nor did he add a postscript telling us that there were 26 other books besides his, the book of Revelation anyway, that comprised the New Testament canon. So then, how do we know what books do comprise the Old Testament and New Testament canon? The short answer is that these questions were addressed by individuals and groups of people and eventually by some church synods and then not until the 1500s or 1500s and 1600s by councils. Synods are smaller gatherings and the councils are larger gatherings of church authorities. It was an organic process that evolved with various arguments set forth for what criteria should be used to assess whether a book was canonical or not. The church did not quickly resolve these questions either. There was no council held, say, at 125 AD to fix the canon and give direction to the church. Competing lists were suggested, though in practice there was a good deal of common use of the same books in the ancient church. Now, Marcion. Marcion or Marcion was a heretic who believed that the God of the Old Testament was an evil creator whom Jesus came to destroy. And he was also one of the first to suggest a canon of books or an authoritative list of books in about 144 AD. So that's pretty early on. His New Testament list contained only the Gospel of Luke and the writings of Paul. It was Marcion's published list that sparked a sharp and ongoing response by other theologians like Tertullian and a concerted effort to create a clearly defined canon. Well, what standard did, say, Tertullian, the North African theologian, and others use to determine what writings were inspired and should be in the canon? Tertullian and others responded by detailing what the church already was acknowledging in its practice as the authoritative books. Surveying the practice and beliefs of thousands of churches, bishops, and theologians, a number of factors were considered these. What writings were generally accepted by the churches? Those that were accepted by everybody would have, those books would have more weight than those that were accepted only by a few. And according to Augustine, the more established churches would have some, would have, the more established churches would have more of a say than say um, those new, new churches. What writings were universally read with edification what had the bishops of the church said and taught on the subject? How often was a book quoted by the great theologians and fathers of the church? And in the case of the New Testament, what writings were clearly penned by an apostle of Christ? These were some of the factors that were considered when the ancient Christians and medieval Christians tried to answer the question, what is Holy Scripture? Though there was a significant unity of practice and belief in the ancient church, addressing these questions was not a formulaic process, and it took the church 
centuries to effectively close the canon. And I have to say that in quotes, because there's a sense in which it's not completely close, less, at least regarding the Old Testament, but we'll get to that in a moment. This reminds me of the way science proceeds. Science, too, asks questions that involve many factors with many potential causes. Why does the sun rise? Why do objects fall to the ground? Should Pluto be considered a planet? What makes the continents move? Why is fire hot? Scientific theories are never really true or false, but rather strong or weak and subject to revision or being replaced altogether. And a famous example would be the geocentric Ptolemaic theory uh, that considered the Earth the center of the universe was considered strong and established for a while. But it was eventually replaced by the Copernican heliocentric theory, as you know. The development of the biblical canon is not completely analogous to to the development of science. But the development of the biblical canon proceeded in a similar fashion. It did evolve. The great bishop Athanasius wrote his festal letter, number 39, because his letters were numbered. He wrote it in 376 AD on Easter. And in that letter, more than 200 years after Marcion, we have recorded for the first time the list of the 27 books of the current canon of the New Testament. The same books regarded as canonical today by the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, and Protestant churches. The canon for the Old Testament, however, also evolved, but without such a clear consensus. The list of the Old Testament books cited by Athanasius includes the book of Baruch and excludes the book of Esther. Athanasius also created a a category for edifying valuable books that Christians should read, but which but which were not regarded as Holy Scripture or canonical, such as the Book of Wisdom, Esther, Judith, Tobit, the teaching of the apostles and the shepherd of Hermas, according to Athanasius. He also mentions a third category of books that should not be read because they're misleading, like the Gospel of Thomas and First Enoch. There is not a present consensus today among Christians regarding the canon of the Old Testament. The Orthodox and Catholics include several books as canonical, like the Wisdom of Solomon, Tobit, Judith, that the Protestants regard as apocryphal. Now, just keep in mind, apocryphal books don't mean that they can't be read for edification. Sometimes you hear this word and something something that's apocryphal must be be in the category of being bad or misleading, but that's not usually the case. They're just, yes, read them, but but they're not scripture, according to the Protestants. Discussions continue regarding the canon of Scripture, especially among Protestants about this, but among everyone. Should the apocryphal writings be read and studied by Christians at all is one question. If they can be read, can they be read for spiritual edification or just for historical purposes? In other words, would it be appropriate to kind of have a devotional time if you're a Protestant reading the wisdom of Solomon? Or would it just be something you would read for historical purposes but not really use to guide you spiritually, not to pray with, say, How do we regard these books? As we study the development of the biblical canon, we also have to note the organic, paradoxical nature of the enterprise. It does appear to be both human and divine. This is how Christians have regarded the development of the canon. Have people, albeit highly qualified people, really chosen the canon, such that the canon owes its authority to those authorities 
that have selected it? Or has the canon merely been recognized for the authority that it possesses before anyone examines it? However we try to see this matter, we see the human blended with the divine like we do with the two natures of Christ. There is present the aroma of mystery. If the scriptures are God-breathed, as Paul seems to write Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, well then, God's breath was put into the apostle Paul, Peter, and John, such that when Paul writes in Galatians 6.11, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand, we take these not only as Paul's letters, but as the very words of God, the human, the divine, combined. Christians can enjoy the comfort of knowing that there is now universal consensus regarding the canonical status of the 27 books of the New Testament, but they must live with some moderate discomfort regarding the canon of the Old Testament. You can look up the lists of the of what Roman Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants believe are the canon of the Old Testament, and you'll see that they diverge in, in not, not in significant ways, but uh, you know, there's, there's some seven or eight or nine or 10 books that are in play uh, that some consider apocryphal and some consider to be scripture. There's a, a summary, an overview, a survey of the development of the biblical canon, and already we ex we've encountered some, some mystery. We've already seen that the human and the divine seem to be present. We've already seen that while there can be a set of books that are considered to be holy scripture, like in Athanasius' letter in 367, there can also be a list of books that are good to read but are not holy scripture, kind of two categories. And he even includes a third, books you should avoid. So now let's turn our attention to the development of the great books canon in that tradition and see what we might learn about how to understand a, a great books canon in light of the history of the biblical canon. So by now you can probably see the analogy. The canon of scripture has evolved and developed over time without a crystalline consensus. So has the canon of the great books. And by, by the way, it was, it was uh, when did Protestants really kind of address the canon? Well, one, one famous time was the, the Westminster Assembly in 1647. When did the Catholics finally address the canon? Uh, the Council of Trent in 1546. When did the Orthodox do the same? The Council of Jerusalem, 1672. So you see, it took a while. Even while there was broad consensus along the way, it wasn't like there was great chaotic debates all throughout history. And even the debates that, did, that were occurring for many years had to do mainly with the Old Testament canon and not the New. Nonetheless, there wasn't a complete sweet consensus um, of the Old Testament even to this day. Guess what? We find the same with the canon of the great books. That should be no surprise. In both cases, the creation of the canon was a process, not an event. One canon, the scripture, is closed now and no books can be added. There's no one arguing for uh, another book that should be added to the New Testament, say. The Old Testament is a matter of just which books that we already have should be canonical, canonical and which should be non-canonical. The other canon, the great books, remains very much open and new books can be added 
even books not yet written. That's why it can be very much open, because there are books still being written today that could qualify, at least in time. And many think it takes 100 years before you could qualify to be a great book in the Great Books canon. Both canons qualify books by a set of criteria, and both canons are set by people who apply those criteria, and sometimes with differing results. Paradoxically, both canons also seem to choose themselves. Now, in the case of the biblical canon, there is a belief that Christ gave the Holy Spirit to the church to lead the church into all truth, and this would include the establishment of the canon, that the Holy Spirit working through the churches, uh, through the ancient church, led it to, uh, to, to recognize the authority of Holy Scripture. There's a sense in which the Scripture claims this for itself, and that's, that gets a little bit complicated. I've already cited 2 Timothy 3.16, where at least Paul makes this claim that all Scripture is God-breathed, but he doesn't tell us what, all, what the list is that would be Scripture. Since ancient times, when books were available, readers have recommended books and a list of books to other readers. Humans share what they love with others, whether it be recipes to prepare, towns to visit, places to vacation, or books to read. Educators, charged with a responsibility for their students, have had to wisely consider what books to require students to read, what books to recommend, and what books to pass over because of the limitations of time, etc. Basil, writing in the 400s AD, offers such advice to his students in a short book called To Young Men on the Reading of Greek Literature. These are Greek scholars who were Christians, but who, you know, in the 400s AD, when paganism was still, uh, was still all around them and the great literary tradition was pagan, what should they read? So he gives some good advice. We can find such general advice in Basil and in Augustine's On Christian Teaching as well. Uh, his, the Latin church father, a contemporary of Basil down in North Africa. In Basil's case, he recommends that young scholars be like the bees, which with natural discernment alight on some flowers, but pass over others. Augustine suggests that readers should refine the gold of literature, removing the impurities, but keeping what is good and true in pagan literature. Both Basil and Augustine cite Moses and Daniel as examples of figures who were learned in the culture they were raised in. In the case of uh, Moses, in Egyptian culture, and Daniel, Babylonian culture and learning. And both of them filtered their pagan learning, but were quite accomplished in pagan learning. But having filtered it, they put it to use for godly purposes. Following the counsel and exhortations of Basil and Augustine in the 5th century, Christians have generally been glad to read edifying literature from outside the church, that is, say, from the Greek and Roman tradition, though with discernment and care. Basil warned scholars not to swallow the poison with the honey and not to mistake the thorn for the rose, to be discerning like the bees are. And Augustine warns his readers to take only the gold from pagan writers and reject the dross, the impurities. In both cases, the criterion for filtering pagan literature is biblical teaching, is Christ himself, or that which is true, good, and beautiful, as we understand those things in the light of the incarnation of Christ, who is the author of all that is true, good, and beautiful. 
Basil and Augustine understood what is obvious to us all. We only have so much time, and we can't read everything, nor should we even if we had the time. What then should we read? What is it that we really should know and understand? These are hard questions to answer and can vary at times and regions, places, languages, locations. How do I wisely, practically gain access to the best that's been thought and said? Should I do this on my own? And even with a great list, like the list that Mortimer Adler created for the great books of Western civilization, who's going to help me with that list? In what order should I read it? Where should I start? Well, it depends. And so you need a guide. Who will be my guide? Who will be my Virgil to lead me through the inferno and purgatory and eventually to paradise? Such natural and important questions lead us to plan our reading with care and to the making of lists. Book lists. Do you have a book list? What are you going to read this year? Educators in particular should carefully craft the list that their students will read because their students are their charges and the students are the ones in need of guidance and the educators should be the wiser mentor who can help. Will Christian educators seeking to wisely guide their students recommend the same books to their students at virtually any time or age? Do you imagine that Professor Basil would have you read the same books as Professor Augustine? They were contemporaries that lived at the same time. Certainly their book list will be the same if they're using the same standards of the true, good, and beautiful, books of enduring excellence in harmony with biblical teaching that ask the profound, continuing, universal questions. Shouldn't the books be the same? What about Professor Aquinas teaching in Paris in the 1200s? Shouldn't his book list be the same? Or Erasmus teaching at Cambridge in the early 1500s? Well, no, their book lists will not be the same, though they might be similar in some important respects. Basil spoke and read Greek. Augustine spoke and read Latin. Aquinas knew Latin, but not Greek. And he accessed Greek only by translation into Latin. And in Aquinas' day, Aristotle had just recently been discovered or rediscovered. Aquinas essentially brought Aristotle, who wrote in the 300s B.C., into the literary canon of the 1200s. Erasmus knew Latin and Greek and was a leading figure in the late Renaissance, a period that recovered and brought many ancient texts back into our reading lists, into the canon of the great books. So we must pause here and just note that the literary canon of the great books was evolving not only by forward straight-line growth, because new books were being written, but also by backward study, seeking, and recovery. All of them would have recommended Augustine's Confessions, except Augustine himself, and Basil couldn't recommend it because he couldn't get his hands on it. It was written only in Latin, and sadly, none of them would have read Dante for the inconvenient fact that Dante had not yet been born. While the canon was growing, in a sense, backwards, of course it was growing forward, as Dante would eventually be born and write the Divine Comedy. From the 400s AD, when Basil and Augustine lived, to Erasmus in the 1500s, 
many new great books were written enlarging the canon. The Canterbury Tales, Beowulf, The Song of Roland, Aquinas' own Summa Theologica, The Divine Comedy, they were all written during this time. The pool of books from which Erasmus might create a student reading list in the 1500s was necessarily larger than the list that could have been created by Aquinas, at least because there had been some of the great books written in the intermediate time, just as the pool from which Aquinas would choose was larger than the pool from which Basil and Augustine might choose. Each of these four professors would also make selections based on language, culture, and region. While Latin was the standard academic language in the time of both Aquinas and Erasmus, Aquinas had no direct access to Greek. Aquinas' teaching in Paris might influence his selection in a way that differed from Erasmus teaching in Cambridge or in Basel, Switzerland. The books they would choose at those times, places, regions would differ because of the times, places, and regions. And the difference between the factors that would influence the choices Erasmus made would be wider still between the choices made by Augustine and Basil in the 400s AD. For all these reasons, book lists created by these four scholars that we've mentioned, Augustine, Basil, Aquinas, Erasmus, spanning almost a thousand years, would vary widely and understandably. The canon has not been static, but living and growing. It has grown not only forward in time, but it has grown retrospectively by discovery and rediscovery. Unlike the canon of Scripture, there has not been a focused, intense, high-stakes movement over a span of centuries to fix and finalize a great book's literary canon. There were lists made, to be sure. I've mentioned Adler's list and their other lists, but not with the urgency and sense of crisis that the church encountered over the question of what comprised the canon of Scripture at various times creating authoritative, if not final, lists has been important. We see this in the anthologies collected by, say, Cassiodorus and Isidore of Seville in the early Middle Ages, for example, both of whom were trying to preserve reading of the great ancient authors after the barbarian invasion and the fall of Rome. It's an understandable need. Book lists and manuscript hunting and collecting increased greatly during the Renaissance, which was a time of rediscovering and rereading of the ancient authors. If the Renaissance was a time of going ad fontes, back to the fountains of great uh, thought, literature, and ideas, is not the current renewal of classical education a kind of Renaissance? Therefore, aren't we trying to renew by going ad fontes, and our book lists, therefore, are growing as a result and shifting and varying from region to region. Google tells us that since the invention of the printing press, there have been about 129 million books published. Each year, about 500,000 to a million titles are added to that number. Of these millions, what books are the good books and which ones are the great books. Obviously, we depend on others to give us guidance, to give us lists, even if it's a list of one. My wife, for example, is currently reading Charles Taylor's The Secular Age. Apparently now, 
I will be reading that book. There are so many lists that there are even lists of lists, like a Wikipedia site that contains hundreds of lists of lists. If you are a college president or a chair or a department or a single professor in higher ed, you work with authoritative lists that you either receive or create or both. If you're a school administrator, department chair, curriculum committee member, or a single teacher, you must do the same. You have to create lists. We work with bibliographies, lists of books selected for us by authorities of one kind or another. We create bibliographies for our students. We create reading lists for our students that often contain three tiers. Books that must be read for class. Books that we recommend for reading. And then usually a larger selection of books for further reference. While the biblical canon is fairly fixed, the New Testament anyway, there have been many times at which the church has been concerned to protect that canon. As we noted above, the biblical canon is not merely selected by thoughtful readers. It's recognized for what it is. The biblical books themselves speak with authority that commands our attention and respect. Charles Spurgeon used to say this about the Bible. The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. The Bible's also been called on many occasions an anvil that's worn out many hammers. There's no need to fret about the status and authority of the biblical canon. It can take care of itself. The same is true of the canon of great books. They too speak with authority that has not been assigned to them, but which they already possess. They too have been recognized for what they are. These books too can take care of themselves. You might know that the word author and authority are related. It was the great actores, the Latin for authors, who created books with actoritas. Before the age of the printing press, think about this. Who would bother to go through the time and the expense of hand copying a book onto an expensive set of parchment or vellum? Books were expensive. To even have your own blank set of parchment pages or vellum pages would, would be, a, that's a significant investment. Who would bother to copy something into that unless it was already perceived to have authority? The majority of ancient books that we have that have survived and come down to us survived because people thought it worth their time and expense to copy them onto vellum and parchment and pass them down to the next generation, recognize them as worthy of having reading, copying, spending money and resources on, and passing on. So then, what if someone argues that an old book should be read again as a great book? What if, for example, someone should argue that Christine de Bazan should be read in our classical schools? Right? Lived in the 1300s in France, born in Italy, but basically grew up as a French woman, served in the court of Charles V, became a great writer, one of the first women to be able to make her living uh, with a pen. First, if de Bazan has been copied, 
from, you know, the 1300s, medieval times, late early Renaissance, and then printed for generations. She already likely has authority. Second, if de Pizan is a great work of authority, she can take care of herself. There's nothing at all, at all wrong, in my opinion, with someone suggesting that we read her. Some will take up the suggestion and, indeed, will read her. And if she speaks with authority, authority to many in our time, word will spread and more will read her. But she will be read not because someone suggested it primarily, but because de Pizan herself will compel her own reading and attention. Apparently, Tolkien suggested that we start reading Beowulf. We did, and Beowulf made its own case for reading. Yes, we do suggest books, but at root, they suggest themselves, and they make their own case, and the best case for why they should be read. There are reasons why old great books get more or less attention at a given time and in a given culture or place. Lewis tells us in his essay on the reading of old books to read the old books because our own culture will have its own peculiar blind spots, like all cultures do, and that the old books from a different time can illuminate our times so that we can see our own errors more clearly. We can be corrected by the reading of old books as well as edified. All cultures err, he says, but not all cultures err in the same way. We might not know our culture is growing soft and intolerant of hardship until we read the journals of Lewis and Clark, or Ben Franklin's autobiography, or Caesar's Gallic Wars, or Gibbon's The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. Will de Pizan's The Book of the City of Ladies, which recounts and describes numerous classical and Christian women who exemplify virtue, wisdom, holiness, and leadership, will it be a timely read today? Well, let some of us read her. She'll make her own case. If enough of us think she is timely and has an authoritative voice for this moment, the word will spread and she will be read more often. Let us not forget, though, that the prudent distinction that exists between the good and the great books. Lewis recommended that we read the old books, but also the new ones. Let us take Tolkien and Lewis again as authors for our examples. The Fellowship of the Ring by Tolkien cannot yet be considered a great book until it has been assessed for about 100 years. The same is true of the Chronicles of Narnia. However, virtually every classical school I know of requires the reading of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first, the first installment in the Chronicles of Narnia. And many, if not most, of the schools I have visited require, require the reading of the Fellowship of the Ring, if not the whole trilogy. These are recent books, and they are good books, and perhaps someday they will be great books. Classical schools already follow a kind of informal 80-20 rule, in my observation. About 80% of the books that are required, maybe even less than 80% in some cases, are the great books, the books that have proven their worth and that are at least 100 years old. But about 20% of the books required 
are more recently published, some even by living authors like Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, which I think is a remarkable book, Pulitzer Prize-winning book by a thoughtful Christian novelist. Well, these clearly are good books. And by the way, it's the reading of the great books that help us to be able to discern even the good books. So let's let schools read some good books that are not yet great, without objection. Let some schools read some old books with which we are not yet familiar, like De Pizan, and let's see what happens. The Great Books Canon, analogous to Scripture, is in its own way living and active and can take care of itself. This has been another episode of The Christopher Perrin Show, and I want to thank you for your time and attention. Thanks for listening or watching. I'd like to thank you for watching or listening to The Christopher Perrin Show. And to do that, I can give you a coupon code that will give you 10% off on anything that you might care to order at classicalacademicpress.com. And the coupon code is simply CPSHOW. Thanks again for listening or watching.